where we're going to be, John 1. Um, so if you can go ahead and open up to John 1. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat back around you. And there should be a bookmark to get you to John 1. So while you're turning there, uh, I'd like to thank uh, a different John, um, John Ross, who uh, has been our and is our uh, custodian and has also been taken over uh, with taking care of a lot of the snow outside. So this, the fact that we were all able to get into the building and not slip and fall and get through all the ice and snow is because of John. So uh, he braved the elements the last couple of days. So he's not here yet because he's trying to get here. Um, but John's awesome. We love him and uh, just want to say thank you to him for all the work he's been doing around here. So, um, so as I said, we're going to be in John 1 this morning. We started a brand new service or series last week. Um, looking where we're going to study through the Gospel of John. And so we started with the first five verses last week. We're going to do a little review um, as well. Uh, as we get into that, um, you know, last, uh, it was probably three or four weeks ago at this point, um, Sarah and I, my wife and I, Sarah, we got to go see a movie in a theater by ourselves. Yeah, I can't, literally years since the last time that happened. Um, and so going and getting snacks and sitting and choosing where we got to sit and what we got to see was a great treat for us. And it reminded me of just how much I enjoyed going to the movie theater as a kid. Because, um, right, because it's like special and unique and you got the big comfy chairs and you get snacks and like mom can't really pay attention to how much candy you're actually stuffing down because it's dark. And this big tub of popcorn and obviously like the ridiculous giant movie screen and the sound system. And, you know, there are just certain movies that like hit differently when you're in a movie theater than they do at home. And I think you take in all the all the excitement, all the fun of going to the movie theater. One of the best things about going to the movie theater is when you get early, you get there early and you see the previews. You see the coming attractions. You see the trailers for the movies that are coming up. So not only do you get to enjoy the movie you're excited to go see, but then you get to see these trailers of other stuff that's coming. Right? The trailers about the movies coming up, the next epic blockbuster. And it's just two minutes of explosions and car chases and epic battles between good and evil. Or the hilarious comedy, right, full of jokes and gags that make you so laugh so much in such a short amount of time that you have to go see that movie when it comes out. Or the epic relationship drama. Will they, won't they, time is running out. How are they going to clear the relational hurdle that is standing in true love's way? We're going to have to come back in a few weeks to find out. Or the movie trailer that shows just enough fear, just enough terror, just enough chaos but doesn't actually reveal the creature causing all of that commotion, and you have to see how gruesome it is. Trailers over time have become onto themselves their own little mini-movies. People wait and anticipate a trailer for a movie coming out almost as much and with as much passion and excitement as the actual movie. And not only that, but then you get multiple trailers for the same movie that get, span, get released weeks at a time. And so then you're starting to look for different details. Was this in the first trailer? Oh, did he say that? Did, who was that person? They create buzz. They create excitement. And they set you up with just enough details to draw you in and obviously leave you with a desire to see that movie when it comes out. The opening verses of John's Gospel. These first 18 verses we're going to look at this morning are known often as the prologue. They are for us a trailer of what's to come. He basically sets up everything he's about to tell us in the Gospel of John is set up in these opening verses. 
really in these, he leaves these, these little seeds of concepts sprinkled throughout the opening verses and really throughout the whole first chapter. The first 18 verses are littered with words and ideas that are planted here, starting right at the beginning, and we're going to see them blossom and grow and bloom by the end of the book. And so we're going to look at these, as I said, the first 18 verses this morning, and I'm going to try and draw your attention to many of them as we go along here. But I'll tell you, there's a lot. And it's one of the cool things I'm beginning to really understand with John, and really as I sink deeper and deeper into studying this book, is on the surface, you can read the Gospel of John and get it. Right? You can read through his gospel and get it. And I mean, understand the big idea, right? We talked last week, the big idea, the main thesis of what John is doing. He tells you at the end of the book, John 20, verse 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what this book does. That's what the gospel of John does. It paints a pretty clear picture of the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. It's why a lot of people, when, when somebody first becomes a Christian and they want to know, okay, now what do I read in the Bible? How do, I, how do I learn more? A lot of people will point new Christians to the book of John. You want to study, you want to know more about God, they'll send you to John. Because you can read through it and, and get a very clear picture that Jesus is God. But the intricacy of this book, the depth of this book is fascinating. And if you go hunting and digging, you begin to see the complexities and these little points that you didn't catch on the first or second or third reading. There is some depth here, depth here to this book that, honestly, I, I did not anticipate when I first started studying it. So like I said, our plan for this morning is we're going to look through these opening verses of John. We're going to focus on some of the key points that John wants us to anticipate and pay attention to moving forward. This right here is our trailer, enticing us to come back for more and more, because the story that is being told here is the most epic series of events to ever happen, and they have direct and personal implications for each one of us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, to John 1. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for heat and technology and people who serve in shovels and salt and God, sometimes it is hard to live in Chicago on mornings like this. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. But we thank you for all the different little graces that we take for granted that allow us to be able to gather together as your people, as your body, to gather together to sing your praises, to lift up our words in prayer, to open your word together, to study together, to grow together, to be challenged and encouraged together. God, as we jump in to this book, as we jump into this series, you have so many things you want to communicate to us. You have so many things you want to teach us. Help us to understand. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend. Give us hearts to believe, and give us hands and feet to respond to the truths that you are teaching us. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're in John 1, starting in, we're going to start in verse 1. I know we read it last week, but we're going to start in verse 1 and go through 18. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. Like I said, we looked a little bit at the opening five verses last week, but I want to briefly look at them again because there are a number of points that we could unpack and walk through just in these opening verses. In the beginning was the Word. We talked about it last week. John is drawing us back to Genesis with the opening phrase, in the beginning, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Here, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, or Logos, depending on how he taught you if you know any Greek, but apparently there was a discussion last week about the way I pronounce Lagos and Logos. Both are appropriate. It's fine. Um, This right here, as John opens up his gospel, it's not just a fun connecting point for the sake of being clever. Everything in this book comes back to the main point, that you may believe. So when John draws us back to Genesis 1, he's back to the origin story, back to how all of creation was created, the origin story of all existence, what he's basically doing here is saying, this is a new origin story. This is a new thing that has happened, right? The opening chapters of Genesis, really all of Genesis is about creation, God creating a new beginning, God creating a beginning, creating existence, and then creating humans, and then taking those humans and and calling a people and, and creating a people he calls to himself. John is saying this is a new creation account. Just because, because just as in the creation in Genesis happened by God, right? In the beginning, God, he's the one who spoke. He's the one who made it all happen. Here now, this new creation account will happen because of the word. This logos has a unique relationship to the God of Genesis 1. In fact, a unique relationship to all of Genesis 1. Because the logos is God but is also his own entity unto himself. He was there in the beginning creating alongside God because he is also God, is what John tells us. This is such an interesting way to start this book, right? Because, like, think about what John is writing here. John is writing a gospel. He doesn't know what we're going to call it a gospel later on. He's writing what the rest of these chapters are, is an account of the, the work, life, and ministry of Jesus, right? What Jesus said, what Jesus did. He's writing something about a person. John knew Jesus. He lived and 
talked and walked and ate and hung out with and served alongside Jesus. He knew him deeply and intimately. They had a close relationship, right? We talked about how John doesn't identify himself in the book, but he does refer to himself a couple of times. And the way he does that is John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were close. I mean, think about your best friend for a second. I encourage you after the service today, text them and just say, hey, and tell them you love them. Now think about that person and think about how you would describe them to another person if you were talking about them to somebody. Where would you begin? To talk about a certain characteristic they have, the story of how you two met, the things that make that person awesome. My guess is if you were trying to describe that person to someone else, you probably wouldn't go back to begin where that person's parents met or how his grandparents met. You'd start with something closer, something more personal, something that relates to you. But John doesn't do it that way. John goes way back, further back than parents or grandparents. He begins his account of his time with Jesus. He begins his account of who Jesus is by saying, I want to tell you about Jesus, and in order to do that, i got to go all the way back to the beginning. Actually, i got to go back to when the beginning began. Jesus' divinity is what he's focused on, right? We've talked about this. Over time, throughout John, we're going to see Jesus talk about God as his Father, which would make Jesus God's Son. Now, this reality, this reference to God as Father is going to infuriate people over time. But what is happening is John is showing us not only the divinity of Jesus, but also that you have at least two separate entities that are God. You have God the Father and God the Son. And then later on, John's going to introduce us to the Spirit. Just as in the opening chapter of Genesis, we have God the Father in the beginning, God, and then you have a few verses later, you have separate, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So even in Genesis 1, you have at least two entities there that are referenced. And then a few verses later in John in Genesis 1.26, there's the reference, let us make man in our image. Multiple people involved in creation. Here in John 1, multiple people involved in creation. One of them is the Word, and the Word will take on flesh, and he will be named Jesus. This really is the main point of the Gospel, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So this is a seed right here being planted here in the opening words of this book, that Jesus is God. This is a seed that's getting planted that we're going to see grow and blossom as we study. This word, this logos, is distinct from God, but is also God, is with God in the beginning, John says. Everything that was made was made through him. Everything that exists has Jesus' fingerprints on it. He made it all. We see a couple other seeds planted in those opening verses. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light. John ties these things together. If you are in the light, you have life. To walk in the light is to have life. This is not just a John thing. This is throughout Scripture. We see the the contrast between light and darkness. And we see in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness, which is trying to but will forever fail at overcoming the light. So John here is connecting light and life. Those those two things go together. So you can infer then that with darkness goes death. 
Those things go together. Darkness cannot overcome the light, and we know the light is Jesus, just as death does not overcome Jesus. And all who have the light and all who have the life will not be overcome, will not be eternally separated from God because they have the light and life. See what I'm saying, saying about seeds being planted? John's like, we're three, four verses in, and John's like, here's some major themes I'm going to carry out throughout this gospel. Here's some major themes we need to be paying attention to. We have light, we have life, darkness, this constant battle that is happening. There's a lot going on here. John's gospel is like a picture that the more you stare at it, the, the weirder it gets. I want you to just, just look at that picture for a few minutes. I'm just going to give you some time. Because the longer you look at it, the weirder details you're going to start to see. I'll start you off. Why is this little girl stirring her drink with a knife? You can go from there and just keep looking at the picture. Papers upside down, the bread and the table are cut, but the piece is different. Over and over, we're seeing these little details. Right, we're starting pop. Yeah, we could we could do this all day. This is John's gospel. The more you look at it, the more you read it, the more you focus on it, more things start popping out. From here, John gives us another concept that we're going to come back to often in this book. And it's the idea of witness and testimony. Look at verse 6. And this is where John actually starts getting into the narrative. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear, came to bear witness about the light. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness. He's not the guy, but he wants everyone to focus on the guy. He is a witness. A witness is someone who takes an event, right? Who is someone who has seen an event, who has takes something happen, right? He sees something happen and someone who can contribute evidence or insight to what happened in a court case. They have a certain kind of information that will shed light on the events that have happened. He says John has come as a witness to bear witness, to testify. Just as in the court systems, when you have a witness for a crime or event, the prosecution's case is strengthened. John is here. John is introducing this John, two different guys. We'll get there in a second. He's introducing him as a witness to support his case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to see throughout this book, throughout the Gospel of John, there are going to be seven, seven major witnesses throughout this book. Seven major witnesses that John is going to call forward to testify to Jesus' divinity. They will each, in some way, whether verbally or through the events that are described, declare the divinity of Jesus, some of them even without knowing it. So this is witness number one, another seed being planted. Each one of them are going to declare the divinity of Jesus, acting as witnesses do in a court, to support and build this case that John is making. Now, the John that is mentioned here, you can see that from the other gospel, if you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, when John is mentioned, it's John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Our gospel just calls him John. Why? Because we don't have to distinguish between any other John that's in the book. The only John that's mentioned here is John the Baptist. 
John, the writer of the gospel, doesn't talk about himself, so you don't have to worry about confusing the two. That's why there's no declaration that this is John the baptizer one, but that's who he is. Why is this here? Right, we're making a point about witnesses, and, and John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus' divinity. But honestly, if you cut this out, if you cut out verses 6 through 8, right, if we jump from verse 5, like, just listen to this. I'm going to go from 5 to 9. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, so on and so forth. Verse 5 to verse 9 flows totally fine. Why the interruption? Why not do all of the introduction of Jesus and then give us John? Well, the fact that we have to ask that question means it's done on purpose. It's intentional. It's an obvious interruption. And I think doing more than just introducing John, but he's also taking this idea of witness and pushing it a little further. So what is he doing? I like how Pastor John Piper says it. He's saying that this is written in this way. Verses 6, 7, and 8 come in as this interruption to make crystal clear from the very outset that God's way of letting the light of Christ shine in the world is by human witnesses. God's way of pushing back the darkness is by human witnesses. Look, we know God is not limited or hindered by anything. He has revealed himself and shown up in a variety of forms and ways throughout history. And he has sent his word, and his word has spread over time, and it has traveled and traversed land and sea and time itself. And it has done that most often by the inclusion of human witnesses being faithful to share what they have seen and heard and experienced and known. God doesn't need us, but he calls us to be part of what he is doing on earth. He calls us to be part of being used for the purpose of glorifying and proclaiming the goodness and majesty of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, S-O-N. He is also the Son, the light, the S-U-N. And if Jesus is the Son, then we are to act as the moon, reflecting that light in the darkness. That's what he says there in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And at the same time that the light is shining, God sent a man named John with a purpose. That purpose is to be a witness that all might believe, it says in verse 7. That word believe is going to come up. It's used in two or three different forms, but the word believe shows up about a hundred times in the Gospel of John. That's one of those seeds. If you got your own Bible, if you want to circle or mark up and, and circle or box or whatever you do to study, believe is one of those words you might want to mark because it's going to keep on coming. Like I said, it's about a hundred times. Obviously, it's right, chapter 20, verse 31. I've I, so that we may believe. Belief has a huge element in this book. John's testimony and ministry we're going to cover next week. We'll talk more about John the Baptist a little bit next week. But there is one other major point to see and consider as we talk about this idea of being a witness. John the Baptist makes it very clear. In verse 8, even the gospel writer makes it very clear. He is not the light. John the Baptist had no desire to focus on himself. Though many tried to make him the focus or thought he was the focus, there were many who thought John was the guy. Because of his ministry, because of the attraction, because you had powerful people coming in to spend 
time with him. John was not the guy. He had a very popular ministry. I'm not going to move again. He had a very popular ministry, but over and over, John continues to take the attention and focus off of himself and put it on Jesus. When we do good, when we thrive, when we experience the blessings and grace of God, we have this tendency in us because of our flesh, because of our sinful nature, we can get so caught up in what's happening that we think it's about us. Well, I prayed. I laid hands on that person, and they got better. I knew the answers to the questions that that person had, and I got to lead them to Christ, and they got saved. I was there. I supported my friend, and they succeeded because I was there holding them up and encouraging them. Look, amen that you're faithful. Amen that you were engaging with the world around you. Amen that God used you. But that's the thing. God used you. It was God who was in charge. But in our heads, we flip that. And we sometimes convince ourselves we use God to do this cool thing. And it comes down to us wanting some of that glory. Wanting some of that shine. Wanting some of the warmth of that spotlight. When we start clamoring for the light, we stop pointing people to the one true light. And see, that's the difference between John the Baptist and most other people. Look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The true light. See, there are many fake lights. Many who want to try and offer themselves up as the light as the only light you ever need. If you just let me illuminate things for you, I will take care of you. But they are nothing more than a mini flashlight running on an old, gross AAA battery. They are temporary and small and flickering. John wasn't looking to be the light. He kept pointing people to the true light. It was as if people wanted him to shine, but he kept holding up a mirror and pointing it and saying, no, go to Jesus. Like I said, light and darkness are already something that has been mentioned as a seed that is going to continue to sprout up. John's already starting to build on it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming. Jesus came to expel and expose the darkness. He did it in real time, in the moment, and he continues to do so through his word and with his presence with us now in the Holy Spirit. But not everyone likes the light. We'll see this idea of light come up later on in John 3. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Not everybody likes the light. There's this part of us that likes to hide in the darkness because the darkness can conceal, can contain, and we can just show the parts that we want to show. But John says the true light has come, and he has exposed and that over time, the true light will shine to everyone. Verse 10, the light is in the world. And even though everything was made through him, everything finds its beginning in him. It's life in and through and by him. Even though Jesus' fingerprints are on the start button of all of existence, the world did not know him. It says, verse 11, even his own people didn't recognize him. 
even those who had grew up with the Old Testament, grew up with generation upon generation of God saying, this is who you are looking for. This is what the Messiah is going to be. This is my son. This is who's coming. Even though they had it right there in front of them, they missed it. And this is much of how John's gospel gets played out. A lot of what happens in the bulk of this book involves people meeting Jesus, hearing Jesus, experiencing him, and either not understanding what he's doing or flat out rejecting him, declaring he is something or someone who he is not. And then Jesus has to respond and calls us to make a decision about that. But not everyone rejects it. Not everyone refuses. We see in verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed, there's our word, believed, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But But to all who did receive him, in contrast, there are those who reject, but there's also those who receive him. To all those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right the privilege. He gave them something they didn't have before, something that not everyone has. He gave the right to become children of God. This word who was with God and is God and created all things, who is also the light, the true light for anyone who believed in his name. And I love that John says, believe in his name, but he still hasn't even given us the name. But for anyone who believed in that name, they become the children of God. They are part of the family of God. This is a new family, John says, a different kind of family, a family not born of flesh. We aren't talking about having to be physically birthed again like Nicodemus will question in John 3. It's not a family born of blood. This isn't about who is and isn't a son or daughter of who. This, is about, this isn't about the urges and impulses of the flesh or the decrees and actions of man and the willpower of man. This new family, this right, this privilege is to become the children of God is from God himself. God makes it possible. God reaches out. God initiates. God makes a way where there was no way. God sent us one who would go to war with Satan, defeat Satan, and restore our right relationship with him. And he did it by sending the word, sending the light, not an abstract concept, but as a human being, John says in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, This logos, the light, took on flesh, became human. To do so meant he had to do, he had to give certain things up. He had to let go and set aside certain things to take on flesh. Paul writes in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He does this so he could dwell with us. This word dwell, it's the verb form of the word tent. To shelter in a tent is what this means. It's really the Greek word for tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place in the Old Testament before there was a temple where God's people, when they were wandering in the wilderness and in the desert, when they were aliens and strangers, when they didn't have a home, when they didn't have a place, they had a traveling tent of worship, a tabernacle. This is the word John uses for what Jesus came to do. 
John likes this word so much, he'll use it again many years later in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, tabernacle, of God is with men. He will dwell, tabernacle as a verb, with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It was a place to worship, a place to encounter God. It was a traveling house of God, a, a traveling temple. And now, John says that the word took on flesh and dwelt, tabernacle. The word who is also the light, who is also not only with God in the beginning, but is in fact God himself, God dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us, and because he did that, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It makes sense that based on who this word, who this light is, that in dwelling with us we have seen glory. John, in using these words, is again pointing us back just in the opening verses. He pointed us back to Genesis 1. Here now he's pointing us back to Exodus. In Exodus, the tabernacle, much of the, the later half of the book of Exodus, God gives instructions. Here's how the tabernacle is to be built. Here's the different places. Here's the different things that are to be in it. Here's how to set it up. And at the very end of Exodus, in Exodus 40, verse 34, the tabernacle is built. Everything is set. And it says in Exodus 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where the glory, the splendor, the radiance and honor of God was. He was physically present with his people as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Glory filled the tabernacle, an awe-inspiring, comforting presence. You could look and see the smoke, see the cloud, see the light, and knew God was with us. The divine glory that was at the tabernacle has now showed up on earth and is a human. Now, John writes, God showed up on earth and is on earth a new living temple. And so when you saw this word who became flesh, when you encountered him, when you heard him, you have seen the full and complete glory of God. Paul says it in Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiant glory that now exists on earth can exist in the flesh because the word is the only son from the father. The one and only. If you got an older translation, the only begotten son of the father. Unique, set apart, yet the very essence of God the father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is the light, is the one who is, who is the only one set-apart Son. John is giving us another theme to trace, another seed to plant. Jesus' relationship to the Father, and thus declaring his equality to God. And in doing that, he makes all the guys in the pointy hats really, really mad, and they end up killing him. And when we see the full glory of the Father in the Son, we have also seen the, he is full of grace and truth. We already said this word is dwelling among us, tabernacling. He's the physical embodiment of what was the place to engage with God in the Old Testament. In Exodus, one of the major stories, many of us, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard it. 
God's people leave Egypt. He pulls them out of slavery. They go to Mount Sinai, and they set up camp. And at one point, Moses goes up on the mountain to spend time with God. And he's up there so long, the people get antsy. They get Aaron, Moses' brother, to build them a golden calf so they can have something to worship. God sees this happen. And he wants to destroy the people because of their idolatry. He says, I want to wipe them out. Why did I bring them out of slavery? And Moses intercedes for the people. He says, if you're going to wipe anybody out, wipe me out. And because of Moses' intercession, God says, look, those who have worshipped this idol, there must be punishment for them. There must be judgment for them. But ultimately, I will keep my covenant. I will stay with my people because of you, Moses. Because of your intercession for the people, I will stay. And God says this to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the things that jesus reveals that the word made flesh reveals to us grace and truth are the things that god declares he is when he is reestablishing his covenant with a sinful rebellious people who were destined for destruction but needed an intercessor to save them this word who takes on flesh and tabernacles with us shows us the glory of God. He can do that because he is the one and only son of God, his exact imprint. Tim Mackey says it this way. He is the human embodiment of those attributes that compels God to not give up on us humans. Everything John is saying in these opening verses are set up for what is coming in the gospel. All of it comes back to the ultimate goal, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is because of the grace and truth of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, that you might have the chance to know him, to be saved by him, and to enjoy fellowship and right relationship with him. This is what John is testifying to, it says in verse 15. That Jesus, though he is younger than John, and John came before him, Jesus is actually greater than him because he actually did come before him. We'll sort all of that out next week. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John understood that though Jesus, his physical embodiment shows up on earth, he, he existed long before he ever walked on this earth. John knew and continuously testified to the fact that Jesus was greater than he was. Because John came proclaiming repentance to the people, but what Jesus came to do was much, much greater. Let's look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace followed by more grace. Grace coming after grace. Grace replacing grace. Helping after helping. Think Thanksgiving dinner. Over and over, just an abundance, an almost gluttonous amount of grace. That's what Jesus brings. There was a form of grace given to the people of God through Moses and the law, he talks about in verse 17. 
the sacrificial system revolving around the sacrificing of animals and the bloodshed, the avenue of hope and forgiveness was also a constant reminder to the people, a rhythm of death, the constant reminder of our lack of right standing with God, our need for a human greater than us, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets, greater than any sacrifice who could intercede for us. All of it was followed by, superseded by, and fulfilled by the grace that proceeds from Jesus going to the cross as our sacrifice, him dying and raising from the dead. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Finally, here in verse 17, after all of the roundabout ways and references and inferences, John finally connects all of the dots and reveals that the Word who was with God and is God, the light and life of men, the light that expels the darkness, the light that John testified to, this true light was a person. Even though he was unknown by his own people and rejected by some, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus, the one Jesus Christ. And he closes off in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. Here's what Jesus does for us. Not only gives us the ability for God to know us as his children, but Jesus takes the full glory of God, the one that Moses wasn't allowed to see, the radiant glory full of grace and truth, and makes God known to us. And he can do that because of who he is. Because he is the word, because he is eternal, because he is life and light, because he is the giver of privilege, because he is the word who became flesh, full of glory, the only son, full of grace and truth. Jesus can reveal that God no one has ever seen because Jesus is God. He is the Christ, the son of God. You start to see why I'm so excited about walking into John with y'all. Like, there's so much going on. The nuance and intricacy and depth of this book, the layers and layers. So much to sit in, so much for us to ground ourselves in. So many different strings to pull on, so many different seeds to see grow and blossom. All these different things that we can track down and connect, all of it coming back to the same major focus. No matter what string you pull, no matter what flower you watch blossom, all of them take you to the same core, the same marvelous, magnificent truth. The light of the world stepped down into darkness, opened our eyes, and let the radiant glory, the grace and truth, the everlasting, steadfast, loyal love of God bloom in. A love that sent his one and only son to earth to live and die for us so that anyone and everyone who receives him, who believes in his name, you have the right, you have the honor, you have the privilege, the gift, the grace to become a child of God. Not because of your bloodline, not because of what you have or haven't done, not because you have it all together and you're something super special, because you're nice enough, smart enough, strong enough, awesome enough. No, your adoption into the family of God, your new identity as a son or daughter of God happens because of that. That's the good news of the gospel. The word showed up. The light shone brightly, and Jesus has delivered to us grace upon grace. We have received what we didn't, couldn't, wouldn't ever earn on our own. And to all who received him, who believed in his name, you are given the gift of grace to become a child of God. 
Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and is Christ, Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. of your love and grace and mercy cannot be quantified. Not here, not, not on this side of eternity. We get into your word, you reveal yourself to us, and over and over we are brought back to the reality of your goodness and your awesomeness and your beauty. We come back to the joy of having a relationship with you. We come back to the, the joy of relief and grace that we find in faith in Christ. God, help us. Help us to never lose sight. Help us to never minimize or negate to cast off the the beauty of the gospel. The importance and value God, I pray that you will help us to rediscover, re-remind ourselves over and over again of our desperate need for a Savior and your love and grace and mercy and blessing upon blessing that has been given through Jesus going to the cross, dying for us, and rising again. God, as we live, we should help us to live as people affected by that reality. That the creator of all existence, the, the maker and sustainer of all existence, sent his son to die for us and wants a relationship with us, wants to know us, wants to hear from us. God, it's overwhelming. It's amazing. God, we don't want to live as people who take that for granted. As we open your word, give us a hunger and thirst to know you more. And as we know you more and more, as we know you deeper and deeper, I pray that it would change us, that it would continue to affect the way that we live and who we are. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you for sending the true light into the world to expel the darkness and for inviting us to do the same, to expel the darkness, to be lights in this world that point people to you. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.